side two. The message came 25 days later, along with the first wave of colonists. The main line had long since gone, winched up into its synchronous orbit satellite and loaded aboard a freighter. There were still a few cosmetic teams just finishing work at the Antipodes. Around Kin, as she stood on a knoll in the midst of the tangled jungle, the steaming, scent-encrusted land was bare of any obvious human mark. Eight thousand miles under her feet, she knew, men, robots and machines were converging on and boiling up the antipodal wire, soaring into the last of the freighters, a twelve-mile skeleton with one big fusion motor, and leaving the world to the newcomers. Despite appearances, it would be a planned withdrawal. Last off would be the sweepers, carefully scuffling over the ruts. A company publicity film had once shown the last man off being winched up a few feet on the line, then bending back to brush out his footprints. Not true, of course, but it missed the truth by mere inches. It was a good world, better than Earth, but they said now that Earth was improving, population up to nearly three-quarters of a billion now, and that didn't include too many robots. Better than her childhood. Kin had long ago dispensed with most of her early memories and a periodic editing, but she had kept one or two. She winced as she recalled the oldest. A hill like this one, overlooking a darkening countryside wreathed in ragged mists and the sun sinking. Her mother had taken her there, and they stood in the small crowd that was the total population of almost half of a country. Most of them were robots. One of them, a Class 8, hide crisscrossed with repair welds, lifted her onto its shoulders for a better view. The dancers were all robots, although the fiddler was human. Thump, thump went the metal feet on the dark turf, while early bats hunted for insects overhead. The steps were perfect. How could they be otherwise? There were no men to hesitate or stumble. The world was too full of things for the few humans to do that they should concern themselves with this. Yet they knew that such things must be continued against the day men could once again pick up the reins, back and forth, crossing and leaping, the robots danced their caretaker Morris. And young Kin Arad had decided then that people should not become extinct. It had been a near thing. Without the robots it would have been a certainty. While the stamping figures rocked darkly against the red sunset sky, she made up her mind to join the company. The first of the big gliders swept over the trees and touched down heavily on the grass. It slammed into a tree, spun around and stopped. After a few minutes a hatch slid back and a man stepped out. He fell over. Kin watched him haul himself up and lean back into the hatch. Two other men came out, followed by three women. Then they saw her. She had taken pains. Now her skin was silver and her hair black, shot with neon threads. She had chosen a red cloak. In the absence of wind, electrostatic charges kept it floating about her in a sufficiently impressive way. No sense in skimping details. These people were coming to a new world. They had probably already drawn up a proud constitution writ in gold and freedom. They ought to be welcomed with dignity. There would be too much time later for reality. 
More gliders were drifting down, and the man who had been the first to step out climbed up to Kin on her knoll. She noticed his pioneering beard, his chalk-white face, but most of all she noticed the silver disc on his forehead, glinting in the first rays of sunlight. He topped the rise, still breathing evenly, pacing himself with the effortless self-control of most centenarians. He grinned, exposing teeth filed to points. Ken Arad! Bjorn Chang? Well, we're here. Ten thousand of us today. You'll make some good air. What's the smell? Jungle, Ken said. Fungi. Decaying pumas. Purple scents from the flowers of hidden orchids. You don't say. Well, we shall have to see about that, he replied evenly. She laughed. I'm frankly surprised, she said. I had expected some jut-jawed young fellow with a plough in one hand and a moral constitution in the other. I know, I know. Someone like that headed up the colony on Landshire. Did you hear about Landshire? I saw pictures. Did you know they spent a week arguing about forms of government? And the first thing they built was a church. And then the winter hit them. And I've been up there in the northern continent in the winter. You'll make your winters cruel. Kin started to stroll down, Chang loping along beside her. "'We did not want them to die,' she said at last. "'We told them about weather patterns. "'You didn't tell them that the universe is unfair. "'They were too young to be properly paranoid. "'And you?' "'Me? I think even I'm out to get me. "'That's why these people have hired me. "'I'm going on one hundred and ninety. "'I don't want to die.' so I will watch the weather like a hawk, and only swim in shallow water, and eat nothing until I've seen a complete laboratory analysis. I'll even duck in case of meteorites. I've got a five-year contract down here, and I intend to survive it. Kin nodded. His self-confidence reassured even her, but she also knew it wasn't quite so simple. In theory, the older you grew, the more careful you were to stay near a gene surgery and the local company store, where your days could be cashed for carefully calculated longevity treatment, at the guaranteed rate of twenty-four standard hours extra life per day. Only the company paid in days, and only the company gave the treatment. Textbook economics followed that the company owned everywhere and everybody. But textbook economics also spoke of the law of diminishing returns. At twenty you acted circumspectly, taking no risks, because if you worked for the company you had centuries ahead of you, ashamed to throw them away by fast driving or high living. At two hundred, who cared? You'd been everywhere, done everything. All new experiences were just old experiences rearranged. By three hundred you were probably dead. Not quite by suicide, however. Not quite. You just climbed higher and higher mountains, or free-fell higher and longer, or backpacked across Mercury the difficult way, and sooner or later the odds ran out. Boredom drove you frenetic. Death was nature's way of telling you to slow down. That's why Chang led a party of green-hand colonists to a new world. There was really nothing to lose except a life stretched thin by endless living. We don't build pleasure planets, said Kin. You'll have to win this one. A glider 
drifted overhead and was lost among the treetops. "'They'll hate it first, said Chang. "'That thing has got all the supplies in it, the blankets and the dumb waiters. I told Control to land it ten miles away. It's a nice day. Our walk will do us good, and we can see who is the type to tread on poisonous spiders.' "'What will you do when the five years is up?' "'Oh, I don't know. "'Probably stay and become the grand old man for a while. "'Anyway, by then I'll have this place too civilized for my own comfort.' "'Hm? Reem wasn't built in a day. "'I wasn't foreman on that job.' "'The colonists were watching her silently. "'No gene surgery, no treatment, no company store. "'Yet they had volunteered.' Not one in ten of them would see a century. They would have the immortality granted to simple people. There would be children. There were few enough children now, even on Earth. Genes would survive while conditions on this world worked their own surgery on them. Hammered on the anvil of a different sun and moon, in a thousand years the people here would be different. Just different enough, according to the plan. "'Here's where we say goodbye,' said Kin, reaching for the pouch at the belt. Here's the deed, the conveyance, and a five-thousand-year warranty against faulty construction. Chang pushed the documents into his shirt. Have you thought of a name? Kin asked. The vote went in favour of Kingdom. Kin nodded. I like it. Simple, but not jokey. Maybe one day I'll be back to see how well you work, Mr. Chang. The last glider down was a company carrier in contrast to the cheap vermifoam of the disposable Pioneer machines. As Kin walked towards it, the hatch opened, and a company robot let down the steps. "'When did you last have the treatment?' said Chang suddenly. Kin stared at him. Eight years ago. Should it matter?' He paused, and moved closer, so that the crowd couldn't hear. "'The company's in trouble. Perhaps—' Our days are numbered. Trouble? The robot pilot registered that Kin was aboard, counted three seconds, and slid the door. The last the pioneers saw of Kin was her perplexed face in the big rear port as the machine drifted away and up. Chang watched it until it was high enough to use the ramjets. Then he reached into the hatch of his own glider and lifted out a megaphone. The crowd became a smudge, a dot and lost itself in the jungle. Kin sat back. The company owned sixty percent of infinity. What trouble? Soon the glider overtook the sun, which set in a reverse dawn. Later they landed on a small sandy island, white in the starlight, surrounded by phosphorescent seas. The line was black against the sky. At its base was one small capsule, and a man leaning against it. Joel. He grinned his Neanderthaler grin. I kin. I thought you'd gone to be a sector master on Kifredor, he shrugged. I was offered it. Didn't suit me. Come aboard, robot. Sa. Hook the glider on tow. Sure enough, sa. And knock off the slave talk, will you? They climbed up to the linesman's cabin and sat down on either side of the central traction tube. Joel Chenge sighed and flicked a switch. There was a jolt, and lines started to flow hypnotically past them as the capsule climbed. "'I am the new watcher here,' he said. 
Oh, Joel, surely not. Kin had a sudden feeling that the bottom was dropping out of the universe. Surely, yes, just between ourselves. I'm rather looking forward to it, wouldn't you? But I can't see you... Kin stopped. You, she meant, spending centuries in a deep freeze cabinet on a high-orbit satellite of this world, never growing older. She could picture it, and it was horrible. Robot Waldos, hovering eternally with syringes held a few inches from the ice-hard skin while other robots watched the world below, looking for certain signs. Fission, fusion, spaceflight, high power use. Some worlds made spaceflight a prime target, hoping to achieve early interstellar recognition. It never worked. Even suborbital machines were the apex of a pyramid, huge and old, resting on things like subsistence agriculture. It was no good trying to fly before you could eat. Joel leaned over and punched up a meal on the console dumbwaiter, which extruded a laden table. He caught Kin's eye and grinned again. Joel often grinned. Paleolithic genes had somehow met again at his conception, and a slab face like Joel's had to smile frequently, lest it frighten small children. When his face brightened, it was like the dawn of man. They spoke, and not merely with words. Between them, they were four hundred years old. Now words were mere flat cars on which towered cargoes of nuance and expression. Kin looked down at the table again. It's familiar, she said. I'm trying to remember. One hundred and thirty years ago, we got married, remember? On Tynewald. There was that mad religion. Icarus risen, said Kin suddenly. Hell, I'm sorry. And you even remembered the menu. How romantic. Actually, I had to look it up in my diary, he said, pouring the wine. Were you my fifth wife? I neglected to make a note. Third, wasn't it? You were my fifth husband. They looked at one another and burst out laughing. Good times, Kin, good times. Three happy years. Two. All right, two. Good grief. That time on Plurshore, wasn't it, when we... Don't dodge. Why a watcher? The temperature fell like a collapsium. Beyond the cabin window's kingdom was turning from a landscape to a disk, sunlight driving the Terminator ahead of it. Oh, life gets a bit stale. On treatment alone I'd never live as long as a watcher. Nice to see a new world grow, see what the future holds. It'll be as good as visiting a new universe. You're gabbling, Joel, I know you remember. I've never known you bored. I recall you spending two years learning how to make a wooden cartwheel. You said you'd never rest till you had mastered every skill. You said you'd never learn to spear a seal or cast copper. You said you were going to write the definitive work on robot pornography. You haven't yet. Okay, I'm ducking out because I'm a coward. Is that good enough? Things are going to happen soon. Best place will be in a freeze box. Things? Trouble. Tr she paused. Chang said that. Big pioneer. I talked to him yesterday when they were all in orbit. He's getting out before the storm breaks too. What are you talking about? he told her. Kin had reported the visit of J-Lo. She had also reported his ability to produce high-denomination day notes. The company examined that Methuselah bill you sent in, Kin. A forgery. He shook his head slowly. Wish it had been. It was sort of genuine. Only we didn't print it. 
The numbers were all wrong, all the codes were wrong. Not inaccurate, you understand. It was just that they aren't our numbers. We haven't issued those numbers yet. Now think about that. There's a process for duplicating company currency. Think what that means, Ken. She thought about it. Company script was subject to so many hidden checks and codes that any forgery would have to be a duplication. And you couldn't duplicate a day bill even by running it through the works of a strata machine because the company owned all the machines and one hidden key in every thick plastic note would fuse the whole thing. No one could duplicate company currency. But if they could, multiple centenarians would be the first to suffer. Company script was so reliable, it was a wealth in its own right. But if day bills were just bits of plastic, if the market was flooded with ten or twenty times the real amount, the company wouldn't exist. Its wealth was its credibility, and its credibility was the hardness of its currency. Gene surgery merely stopped you dying. You could go on living without the additional treatments that days would buy, but you would grow old, immortal, but senile. No wonder they were hiding out. Joel was grabbing a sort of immortality. Chang was at least escaping the crash. Probably the less level-headed were doing things like taking a spacewalk without a suit. There must be millions of us, Kin thought. We complain about never eating a dish we haven't eaten before and the colours slowly draining out of life. We wonder if the short-lifers live more vividly and dread learning that they do because we gave up the chance of children. It would be so unfair, as if a man has only a certain allocation of things like elation and delight and contentment, and the longer he lives the more they must be diluted. But life is still sweet, and death is just mystery. It is age we dread. Oh, hell! Did they look for him? she said. Everywhere. We know he's been to Earth because all the Terminus probe records in the Space Flight Museum have been wiped clean. Then we know nothing about him at all. Right. Find a bolt hole, Ken. He gave a short laugh. At least company policy was right. Our worlds will last. One man can't bring down a civilization, said Kin. Show me where it says that it's a universal rule, he snapped, and then relaxed. This cloak. Really invisible? Well, if you looked directly, I remember things behind it being just slightly blurred, but you wouldn't notice if you weren't expecting it. Useful for old-fashioned espionage, maybe, mused Joel. Very odd, though. I don't think we would make one. You have to have a pretty high technology for that sort of thing, and in a high technology, invisibility wouldn't be a very great asset. So many other things would detect you. I wondered about that, said Kin. Then all this about matter transmission. All the theories say it isn't quite possible. The Wasbile double effect almost does it the same way you can always build an almost perpetual motion machine. The satellite at the line's end was a bright star ahead. Joel glanced down the controls. I'd have liked to have met him, he said. I read about the terminus probes when I was a wee lad. Then once, when I was on New Earth, I went to see Rip Van Levine's farm. He was the one who landed on the planet and found— I know about him, said Kin. If Joel had noted the tone in her voice, and surely he must have done— he didn't show it. He went on cheerfully. A couple of years ago I saw this film they made of T4 and T6. They're the ones who are still travelling. 
There's a charity on New Earth. Every ten years or so they put a couple of ships on a flick orbit to build up acceleration and... I know about that, too, said Kin. The ships built up acceleration by diving into New Earth's sun, then making an elsewhere jump back a few million miles, then diving, then jumping, and finally popping out of nowhere a few hundred light-years away at a light-squashing speed and a few miles from the probes. Terminus 4 hadn't decelerated at turnover point, and a fault in Six's primitive computer had guided it precisely to a star that wasn't there. In the normal course of events, the pilots would have decomposed centuries ago. Suspended animation had been pretty primitive then, too. But the alien machinery had long ago been piecemeal replaced, and the visiting crews added refinements every decade or so. It wasn't cheap. It would have been a lot easier to thaw out the pilots and bring them back to a life of luxury. But Rip Van Levine, the death-and-glory terminus pilot who, after a thousand-year voyage, landed on a world settled by elsewhere-driven ships three hundred years previously, had been a rich man when he suicided. Rich enough to employ good lawyers, and to insist that his trust do everything that could be done for the last two pilots, except wake them. "'The Levine Trust has us tied in knots,' said Joel. "'The first thing the company thought of was to wake the T-4 pilot and ask her about J-Lo. They all trained together, so she might know something. But apparently the whole of New Earth would raise hell if we tried it.' "'Joel, what do you think of that idea?' said Kin. He met her gaze. "'I think it's despicable. What else?' "'So do I.' She stayed at the satellite until Joel had finished setting the system, and watched while he activated the circuit that broke the long-chain artificial molecule that was the line. Now Kingdom was on its own. She didn't stay to watch him ready the freeze room. Her private boat had been left in orbit near Up. Technically she was on leave until she joined the rest of the team at Trenchet, where the advance parties had already cleaned the atmosphere and strengthened the crust. Months ago she had planned to stop off at Mom Remon Spitz for a look at the new spindle excavations there. There had been rumours of another working strata machine. Right now it seemed less than important. She slammed the airlock's inner door shut behind her. "'Salutations, lady,' said the ship. "'The sheets are aired. We are fully fueled. Shall we run you a bath?' "'Uh-huh. We have the course computed. Do you wish a countdown?' "'I think we can dispense with all that excitement,' said Kin wearily. "'Just run that bath.' When the ship boosted, the bathwater slopped gently against the edge of the tub, but did not spill. Kin, who had been brought up to be polite to machines, said, "'Neat. Thank you. Five hours and three minutes to flick over.' Kin soaked an arm thoughtfully. After a few minutes she said, "'Ship?' "'Yes, lady?' "'Where the hell are we going?' I don't recall giving you any instructions. To Kung, lady, as per your esteemed order of three, three, eight hours ago. Kin rose like a well-soaked Venus anodiamine and ran through the ship until she dropped into the pilot chair. That order, she said softly, repeat it. She watched the screen intently, one hand poised over the panel that would open a line back to Kingdom Up. Joel wouldn't have frozen himself yet. The process took hours. Anyway, a machine could just unfreeze him. The important thing was that the station had a big enough transmitter to punch a message through to the company. She recognised the touch of Jago. 
The transmitted order had been simple enough, prefaced by the ship's call sign and Kin's own code. It had come over the normal ground-to-orbit channels. It could have come from a dozen transmitters while work on Kingdom was being completed. It had ended a flat world. You, Kin Arad, are a very curious person. Cheat me, and you will forever wonder what sights you missed. Kin's hand dropped, and didn't touch the message switch. You couldn't build a flat world. But then, you couldn't come back if you were a Terminus pilot. And you couldn't duplicate company script. Ship? Lady? Continue to Kung. Oh, and open a channel to the screen in my study. Done, lady. It was wrong. It was probably foolish. It would certainly get her fired. Be there, or forever wonder. She filled the hours by relearning primary e-Kung and reading the supplements to the Planetary Digest. It appeared the Kung now had a line, but no one had got round to banning ship landings on the world itself. Nothing much was banned on Kung, even murder. She checked, and found it was now the only world in local space that actually allowed ships to land under power. Was that relevant? Kung was hungry for alien currency. There wasn't a great deal Kung could produce that humans could use, except a whole variety of pneumonia-type illnesses, but there was a lot Kung wanted. It was trying to start a tourist industry. Kin had been there. She recalled rain. The Kung had forty-two different words for rain, but that just wasn't enough words to encompass the great symphony of water that fell for fifty-five minutes in every hour. There were no mountains. The light's gravity had allowed plenty to rise, but it allowed lots of ocean spray into the wind to wash them down. The nubs that remained had a dispirited, back-turned look. Of course, sometimes they became islands. Kin remembered about the tides. An over-large moon and a cool, close sun meant nightmare tides. Vegetation was either fungal, able to spring up and fruit hurriedly at low tides, or it was resigned to a semi-submerged life. And tourists came. Even though they had to wear float jackets most of the time in case of flash tides, the tourists came. They were fishermen and mist enthusiasts, mycophiles and van der Jahr biology students. As for the Kung themselves, she switched off and sat back. You should have told the company, she said silently. There's still time, she answered. You know what will happen. He might be mad, but he's no fool. He'll be prepared for any trap. Besides, Kung isn't a human world. Company writ runs thin down there. He'll duck and weave and we'll lose him, she said. You have a duty. You can't let a menace like him run around loose just to satisfy your curiosity, she answered. Why not? How rich is Kin Arad, daughter of the genuine Earth and author of Continuous Creation, QV? The company paid its servants in days, but since they could earn far more than a day in a day, they often sold surplus time for more traditional currencies. Temporarily, then, her account showed that she had another 368 years 
five weeks and two days in hand, plus 180,000 credits. And a credit is worth a credit these days. In any case, credits were backed by days. The galaxy had rare elements in plenty. The transmuter at the heart of every strata machine or dumbwaiter could make anything. What else but longevity itself could back a currency? Kin could buy life. Could Solomon have done it? Could Clority have done it? Could Hughes have done it? She was rich. An alarm beeped. Kingdom's sun bulked in the forward screen as a fire-rim black disk, the sensors having long ago been appalled by its brightness. Kin switched off the ship's voice because she hated to count down to an elsewhere jump. It was like waiting for death. If the computer was right, and it was never wrong, the ship would jump just as soon as it was at an acceptable orbital speed with regard to a few seconds of vertigo, a brief agony of despair, soul lag it was called on little evidence. Certainly something in the human mind refused to travel faster than, it had been experimentally verified, 0.7 light-years per second, so that after even a short jump through elsewhere space there was a hollow black time before the rushing mental upwell the destination world. Kin caught her balance and looked out. The Kung Sun was a cool red dwarf. Statistics said it was small. They lied. From four million miles away it was a giant. Kung practically rolled through its upper atmosphere, and there it was, a perceptible black disk. Kin smiled. Kung, living under permanent cloud cover, were mad enough to begin with. What sort of religion would they have developed if they had been able to see the sky? Three hours later she left the ship a few miles from Kung Line Top. The satellite was decorated in Kung style. Grey and brown-purple predominated, with startling touches of heart-attack red. There was no immigration control. Kung welcomed smugglers. Smugglers were rich. Her suit's jets wafted her gently into one of the airlocks, which cycled automatically. Line top. The space would end the monomolecular wire that linked every civilized world with the greater galaxy. The gateway to the stars, where robots jostled with ten-eyed aliens, spies moved circumspectly, golden-bearded traders of strange and subtled wares sold curious powders that made men go mad and talk to God, and crippled boys busked strange electronic instruments that plucked emotions. Line top. A hefty kick and you had escape velocity. Line top. Threshold of the universe. Anyway, that was the idea. But this was reality, and Kung was in a poor time for the tourist trade. The Kung that loped through the tethered satellite's corridors were admittedly colourful but familiar. There was a unipodal eft operating a sweeping machine in one corridor. If it was a spy for the Galactic Federation, it was a master of disguise. End of Side 2